dublab.com. You just heard 1967's Silver Apples of the Moon. Beautiful, uh, groundbreaking, far out music from Morton Sabotnik. And we're so uh, very pleased and honored to have the man himself, Morton, in the studio here. For the French folks out there, Morton, for, uh, for the rest of us, Mort. How are you? Great. How are you? Doing good. Welcome to uh, back to Los Angeles. I know you spent a lot of time here. Yeah. You're uh, currently uh, a bit further east. Yep. As far as you can go east before yeah. you drown. Yeah. Until global warming, then yeah. we'll all be there. <laughs> exactly. We'll have to uh, converge a bit more in the middle. And you were actually born in Los Angeles, Yeah, right? I was born in Boyle Heights. Wow. Most people didn't know where it was then anyway, but um, yeah, that's where I grew up. Great. And uh, this piece of music that we just heard, Silver Apples of the Moon, uh, released in 1967 on Nonesuch right. Records, correct? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a pretty pretty far out sounds um what was the the reaction to the music well it was it was a big hit it yeah. was really amazing um it was the bukla had been around for not very long mortgage came out just about that time and um so there wasn't anything quite like it and um I had a, a publishing contract um, at the time with my music, and um, the, the the ordinary expectation of a record was of your music was that they would sell a couple hundred, and um, the publisher always took fifty percent because they figured they were doing so much work for you, you know, and, and they could collect a little money on the side there. But of course, the publisher had nothing to do with. So, they didn't publish anything, so when the piece. But I allowed the contract because I didn't expect to sell anything. You know, it was not. It was nice someone wanted to record yeah. it, but it, um, and I, and it wasn't recorded. I actually made it. They, I mean, they didn't record anything. I made it in my studio and handed. It was a whole new concept. Um, how did that connection come? How did did none such? Um, how did they connect with you? I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I know I know how it came about physically, but I don't know how they got to mm-hmm. doing it. But um, I had it's hard to it's hard to um, probably a little hard for you and other people to visualize what was going on then. But you know, records were not a big thing, and and um, I, I got out of high school in 1951 and was interested in the music of. Webern and Schoenberg, and uh, there was one recording of Webern and one score available, mm-hmm. and the score wasn't the same as the recording. It was a different piece. Wow. So to get to know anything was really, you know, it was not an easy thing to do. There was just not not out there. And by the end of the fifties, it was a little better, but not not a whole lot. So mm-hmm. we're talking only a few years after that, but it was a big thing that happened at that point around 1960 with records long playing records and the whole thing and it felt it really felt like a new world was about to approach but not everybody saw that Mm -hmm. and so i was giving lectures i was doing um to help make a living i was doing lectures for symphony societies and things like that and um um 
I talked about the fact that because of the re- recording was going to get better and better and more in the home and the Beatles hadn't hit yet, you know, n- nothing had really materialized quite yet. And um, I said, um, eventually, I knew this wasn't going to happen, but I, I, and I even told the people, I don't think this was going to really happen, but what really should happen is that we shouldn't be, when this happens with this recording thing, we shouldn't be replacing musicians on records. We shouldn't take a Beethoven string quartet and record it forever. Mm. Um, It should just stay on 78s. You know, so it never replaces a performance. But what we should do with the new medium is commission works. You know, have people make things for a record. The record should be the medium, not mm. not the recorded medium, but the real medium. Mm. And and it should be. And I even on Silver Apples and Moon in the back, I say this is the new chamber music. Um, you know, the yeah. the recording. So, I was in my studio in New York. Um, every night working and the rock bands were just down the street and they played and, and they'd come over many the people would come over at night and it was sort of a little you know a community and around two or three o'clock in the morning this guy walks in like everybody else walked in except he wore a suit and um he gave me the talk that i just gave you that i was giving to people he <laughs> repeated it almost Intact, and I thought, I thought it was a joke. I thought he was kidding. He said we're going to commission you to be the first person to do it. And I said, "Look, I'm really busy. Why don't you just leave and leave me alone?" <laughs> so he left. He told me the name of his record company, Nonesuch, and I'd never heard of it. So uh, I thought it was Nonesuch is kind of a weird name for a record company. Mm-hmm. And so I went home that morning, six in the morning as usual, and get the. the try to get rested before I got the kids off to school and um, I I usually took a nap around 6 o'clock before they got up and um, and I had a I had a Brandenburg concerto that I played to put me to sleep and it was an unsuch record wow because I bought it because it was cheap I didn't mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know and so I and I, I tried to reach them all day long I, I thought oh my god I just it was real and uh, <laughs> And I couldn't reach them. They didn't have a phone number. It was it was Electra Asylum, and I didn't know that. So that's that, a way to keep demand up, though. You tell them to you know get going, get lost. Yeah, right. That was great. Forward. It was wonderful. And so that night, um, he come came back, and um, I was about to say, oh, and he offered me five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and I I, uh, I I was about to say, you know. I'll, I made a mistake, and he said, "Don't, don't kick me out again." He said, put his hand up. He said, um, "He said we've we've had a meeting. We met today, and uh, we've we've upped it. We'll give you a thousand." Wow. And so I said, "Okay, I'll take it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. That was so rough. So how they got to me, I don't honestly know. Yeah. I was, I guess, I was fairly well known at that time already. Uh, I was doing a lot of multimedia and and stuff, but um, didn't feel like. I was well enough known that someone would do that. Yeah. You know, I was was quite surprised. But you know, looking back, there wasn't. I was doing something that no one else was doing. I yeah. just I didn't know that. I mean, I was just doing what I did. Can you give us a sense of what the studio was like for folks? Uh, you mentioned Bukla 
and uh, Don Buchla developed a synthesizer system uh, that you used for Silver Apples right. and for the recording of that. Can you give us a sense of what that looks like and what what it was? You know, for folks out there who might not have an idea. Right. Well, they can look it up on the web now, so mm-hmm. they can get pictures yeah. <laughs> of it. Um, it. It was, um, well, we started around 1962. Um, I had this vision of a. Uh, it was a tape center. Mm-hmm. We had started the tape center. There's a book now. I think it's called San Francisco Tape Music Center and the Counterculture of the 60s. It's a very good book. And they they, um, they really spent a lot of time talking to all of us and really getting a picture of it. And so we had started this tape center, Ramon Sender and myself. And um looked a little bit like this mm-hmm. place right here, except <laughs> your equipment's a lot better. Uh, and... Um, um, at that point, we were essentially cutting tape. I mean, if you want to make a make a crossfade between two sounds, you took the two sounds each on a piece of tape, held one over the other, and if it was two seconds long, you'd be cutting roughly thirty inches of tape at a diagonal straight across with a hard edge. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't exactly ideal for um, what people had in mind. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea of, um, I called it an electronic music easel. I don't really think I called it, maybe I just called it a music easel. I don't even know if the word electronic was in it. But the idea was a black box that would be cheap enough for everybody to have in their homes. I didn't know what it was going to look like. And um, put an ad in the paper in the San Francisco Chronicle for an engineer. No money but for someone who would come along and help us make this thing. And um, several people came, and then Don Buchla arrived, and out of an ad in the paper. Wow. And um, um, we got along right away, and he went off, and we gave him some ideas. And he came back the next day with something, with Mm. batteries and something, and it it made sound, and it worked. And... um, so he said, I don't think this is the right way to go with it. I think, you know, and he, and he really introduced us to the world of, um, the, we knew about the transistor, but, but I didn't know really what it was. Um, and he gave us the new world of, of uh, what this whole thing could be, voltage control, which no one had used really yet at that time. Wow. But it was being used in, in military and other places. So um, we worked with that. And uh, it was mostly Don and myself. I gave him the music side of it. And it it ended up to be a a box about, um, I guess, about two, two and a half feet tall. Not quite square, uh, rectangular, but maybe um, a little taller than it was wide. I I don't know the exact, but nothing huge. And... um, a bunch of knobs, and they were all modules. It was already modular uh, right from the start, the, the concept, so that you could put it together any way you want. And um, I, I, was, I still had the idea that this was an easel, you know, that you would have in your house. And so the functions of each knob would be a, a function of some aspect of making things. But I didn't have the idea that it was a keyboard. We didn't have a keyboard. It was not something you would play because... You wanted to play, you would get a piano. A piano plays, yeah. you know. You don't want to. This was a whole, very much like what you're doing, you know. Yeah. Now, um, it, it, it wasn't DJ, but it was 
it was using knobs and a little touch plate keyboard that where you you could change the voltage mm -hmm. by pressure and uh, and control of various sorts. So um, we divided everything up into categories of one was a sound thing, something that produced sound, and for that we had assigned saw square wave. Um, and Don wanted to know how accurate it should be. So I called my friend that I played. I was a clarinetist. I was playing with the San Francisco Symphony at the time. And uh, I called my friend Nate Rubin, the violinist, and he came over and I said, Nate, tune your violin and play. And it's, when it gets out of tune, when it gets out of tune that I can recognize, we'll stop. And I timed it. It was about 15 minutes. I said, Don... If you can build an oscillator that'll stay in tune as long as a good violin, we're okay. So <laughs> wow. that was it. And it was a really fortuitous thing because it turned these things into very cheap objects. When Moog went and made his later, he made it like an engineering thing from a radio station. So you had to pay at that time four or $500 for a Moog oscillator, which is not much money now, but it was a lot then. Ours were in roughly fifty dollars for two. Wow! So, um, uh, you know, it was a module of two oscillators for fifty dollars. The idea was that everybody should have one. I wasn't going into business. We weren't going to sell them. We just wanted it for the studio. But Don was going to go into business. So, you know, we were trying to make it so that everybody in the world could have one of these things. That was the real vision. So there were oscillators. And then the oscillators had voltage-controlled inputs for the waveform and for um, frequency modulation. That was before frequency modulation, mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was an early form of frequency modulation. So you, and then there were um, input devices. There was a sequencer. Um, Don introduced us to the sequencer, and we wow. put three voltage... Um, controlled outputs from each stage of the sequencer and the sequencer could feed back into itself that's when i that was the point at which i realized what we were dealing with at this point it, it really turned into an analog um, computer because for instance we, we made envelope generators but they weren't associated with um amplitude so when Moog did it, he thought of it as a musical instrument, so he linked everything together. But this wasn't. This was totally isolated, because immediately when I saw that sequencer, and I thought you could take the output of every position of the sequencer, throw it back into the pulse generator, and change rhythms yeah, yeah. on the spot, and change positions, and... And then I'm, by linking two of them and making them out of sync, 116 and 115, you would have 16 times 15 voltages, three position, uh, six positions each. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. Infinite possibilities, and it continues today. You yeah. know, we have people come in here using uh, Buchla modular synthesizers and playing music, and you can... You know, it's oh, you've seen wild. it, so you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. So, and then the other thing that, about it, well, but get to that in a minute. Um, the, the the cables, we should talk about that. But so we, so the envelope generator was, in my mind, um, uh, an interpolator of voltages from one point to another and back again or to another place, which I immediately saw could be panning. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have much in the way of filtering, but pitch change and. Um, and immediately 
we talked about the idea there should be a, um, a voltage modifier so that you could invert voltage, voltages, you could condense them from zero, instead of zero to 100, zero to 100% would be, um, you know, a half a volt. So that whereas it goes to one place, it would go whoop all the way mm-hmm. to another place, it would go whoop. And at the same, but the same voltage. So, um, and the other one goes backwards or upside down. Um, uh, so um, this was, this is a whole bank of these little things with knobs where you sit there and, and route these things. And then the other thing, because we weren't, again, that early notion that um, the control didn't have to be perfect. It didn't mm-hmm. have to be, this was not a scientific object um, or a perfect musical instrument to play Bach. Um, this was a new thing, and it would be imperfect, like a paintbrush is imperfect. Yeah. And it's nice the way metaphor, you know, sure. moves into that. And I was thinking of finger painting, even. Yeah. So you know, well, would you relate that to the uh, the waves, the waveforms, the saw wave, the sine wave? Would they be different types of brushes or different painting tools? Uh, I would have loved it if we could have had something other than pure sine tones mm. and, and square waves. Um, so, but they were the, they were in fact the the object, and then the control of them was the imperfect. Got thing. it. We Got really it. couldn't do much with that at that time. Later, later one could. Well, that's why it had FM. You could modulate it, turn it into mm. those kinds of things you were listening to. Thinking of. But wait, uh, let me just finish uh, that because sure. because that led to the fact that we did not need to use uh, shielded wiring for the voltage control. That meant we could use banana plugs, and this was. The banana plug carries the, the voltage you can put through your body. It's so low. Mm. So um, you could stack. You could come out of a, of a thing that went from 0 to 100% in two seconds and take a stacking thing out of it and send it to 20 places wow. at the same time. The Moog, because he did it so well... The irony there is that they were all shielded cables. They were all so. If you wanted to go to two places at the same time, you had to build an object that will multiply it without losing any any because he didn't mm. want to lose any sure right. any, anything. He was a real engineer, you know, and he lovely guy and a yeah. beautiful machine, but very different concept um, in deal, dealing with it. Yeah, did when that did that sort of factor into performances at the time? Yeah. The fact that things were absolutely unpredictable. Um, you, that were what? That things were just sort of unpredictable and Well, they weren't really unpredictable. That's carrying so you, a little So there far. was some Oh, there was idea, predictability, yeah. but but it wasn't perfect. Right. Um, I mean, there was un, unpredictable at at the at a small level. I mean, if I wanted to go, it would always go, but somebody would go, Right, right. Well, it's a well, small sort of imperfections. Yeah, it, yeah, and that was human. That felt good to me. Um, yeah, but it wasn't yeah. like you didn't know what was going to happen. And Definitely uh, brings a sense of musicianship to the sounds. That's right. Fact, it, that there were, there, it was feeding back. If you're a conductor and you bring your hand down, it's not, never exactly the same, but it's, it's so close that you don't worry about that. And, you, and you're fed off of the difference. So you, that helps you. You're conducting and... The tempo, they're doing a slightly different tempo. You adjust to it, and that gives you a different... It feeds back to both people. There's things, and there was always a kind of feedback there. Right. Um, that, But it was a machine, so it was, you know, you were... It was the beginning of interacting with machines um, in, in a very different way. 
Um, and I kind of, you know, sometimes like the getting out of tune would create beats and things, and that would exactly, give you ideas. Right. So in that sense, it was unpredictable, but not in not in the sense it was like chance, and you never knew quite what. Some people thought of it that, that that's what we were doing, that it was just, you know, whatever happens just happens, but that really wasn't the right. case. Was it performances where they sort of scripted or did you do both improvisational performances and scripted performances or, or playing nev- a piece? I, I never did scripted no. performances. Uh, scripted only in the sense of um, general. General. Uh, yeah, general a, stuff. A metaphor and, uh, score. Yeah, metaphorical or, or timeline like, you know, first there's going to be something very quiet and then there'll be something. Right. Yeah, but ne- not really a time to it or anything. And and then I would develop a patch, uh, which was, this this probably doesn't exist in any form anymore, but I would develop a patch because you couldn't repatch quickly. Right. So I would develop a patch that I could get a lot of stuff out of, mm-hmm. that I could do something quiet and I could do something by changing this or changing that. You practiced, but right. you didn't practice the piece. You practiced manipulating a patch and if it didn't quite work right. I may even at some point, so getting ready for a big performance, have Don make a new module mm, right. you know, for something that that I couldn't get couldn't get something to do right. and he would make a new module for that. What was the size of the equipment that you're bringing out? Well, when I went to New York, he made me a duplicate of the studio that we had in, in San Francisco because I, and, um, you know, m- that was what I worked with. And I think it was at the beginning, it was two boxes. Um, and as I said, the box, I don't know, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I would guess you could get probably about 15 to 20 modules in a box. Wow. So um, I had two boxes and uh, to start with. Then I got three because I was also controlling lights and things like that. And, <laughs> and, um, and I would ask him to make more things for me. So by, by the end of the first year, by the time Silver Apples was done, or, or I was really working on it, I probably had three boxes of full. But they, you could, they would easily fit on a six-foot table with room to put other things on. So as you were performing the music, you were also controlling the lighting effects as well? Yeah. Wow. You, With the same... The same equipment. Oh. Just, uh, he built a silicon rectifier, which changed um, the low voltage into high voltage. And um, you, know, you could, and, and took light bulbs and cut... Or, or the bulbs of projectors mm. and, and took, cut one of the wires and put it through... The silicon rectifier. I mean, through the through the not the silicon rectifier, but the, the sequencer or the wh- whatever I was using, so that the voltage from that would um, it was like a dimmer, hmm. like like a dimmer uh, that you buy in the hardware store, it, but you, it was run by the the computer. So I could control the bulbs of projectors, ah. and then I took sixteen millimeter silent film and um, took the sprocket holes on the side that would go uh, over the playback head, mm-hmm. which would produce a pulse. So I had a, I had, and the, the, and I had various variable controlled projectors, so I could use the computer, the, 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 the booklet to control the speed of the, or, or use a knob to control the, speed of um the projector wow. but it was sending a pulse so i could line 
the 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 pulse the um, sequencers up with the frames of the of the films, so um, things would line up and and be absolutely synced. It was like an early Simpty uh, code. Wow, wow. Uh, what uh, what types of venues and audiences were you playing for? Well, in the it changed. Um, I didn't do anything public until the late '60s because it didn't, you know, until after Silver Apples. Silver Apples was done. The the, the show we're doing at Red Cat mm-hmm. is a piece with Ann Halperin, that a big dance piece with that we collaborated on. When it was done in New York in '66, I was working on Silver Apples of the Moon. So a lot of that was there. Some of it was live, some was on tape, um, things that I'd recorded. And um, a lot of what the second side turned out to be was going all the time. We do that. Um, wow. I mean, they're doing it here. And um, then I was also doing the Electric Circus. Uh, I started the Electric Circus. It was the artistic director of that huge multimedia discotheque. And Silver Apples, again, before it came out, was started with heartbeats and you know went through the whole thing for almost an hour yeah and some of that a lot of that was on tape at that point because it, it, its end result was going to be a record so it, it eventually all got taped and I, I never did it wholly um as i'm going to do it for the first time as a live performance next season wow um but it'll be a remix it'll be something quite different but it'll have all the elements of it that i'll do live with a computer but um my live performances didn't start with with the book book until after i was already doing records so um i then i i got well known almost immediately and i started going out and the venues were well, i'll tell you about one it was really wonderful i was using lights and i had tony martin the light artist um, painter light artist uh, was working with me very closely in new york and um we would go to universities, and um, uh, because there was an electric circus, we were doing things there, and then um, there's a qu- quite a bit of notoriety, so we were going around to different venues, a lot, mostly university-type uh, situations, and we went to Colgate, and um, trying desperately to earn a living, too, you know, during this time, and nobody was paying anything, so uh, my my famous Silver Apples of the Moon was on top of the charts for a year. I got two thousand dollars that year, so you know it was not like um, major stuff that, that that made us wealthy or anything. So uh, um, we were trying to do things like commercials and things to 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 do it. And I, I, um, I, I, uh, we went. We were in Colgate. We were doing two performances. You know who Marianne Amershay was. Right, Sounds she, familiar, she just died, sure. but she, she was with me. Uh, Sarah Cherupnin, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people who ended up becoming part of the the scene were were actually helping me, and they all came with me to to um, Colgate, and Tony was doing the lights, and we did this thing. Moog was at the concert. Wow, um, it, 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 I don't, I think he lived near there at that point, or I'm not really sure, but um, first night. Um, we did the thing, and after it was over, you know, I'm getting standing ovations here. We were just talking about <laughs> that. When the thing was over, 
there was a lot of booing and uh, wow. some applause, and some people really loved it. And one guy came up on the stage with a very red face and and um, veins on the side of his <laughs> thing bulging out, and he said, and he threatened to kill me he, because wow. I was destroying uh, music. And <laughs> guys had to grab him; he wow. was coming to, to to hit me. And um, we got out of there. And um, we had another performance the next night. And we were getting all together for everybody who was there, $500 for the two nights that we had to pay for our motel. And even in those days, that wasn't very much money. So um, we get back to the motel, and there's a note, um, from a message for me, a note under the door that this guy in New York had call him immediately as a commercial for me. And I I really didn't know how to do this. I mean, I was doing commercials, and the pay was enormous. I mean, it was just really unbelievable for doing nothing. And so I called him on the phone, and um, in those days you got to find a, you know, the switchboard was closed, and you had to go out and find a phone <laughs> booth. I call him, and he said, hey, Morty, he said, um, I have a Dream Whip commercial for you. It's a 30-second commercial. How much do you want? And I won't go through the whole story, but at this point, I I kept upping the price because nobody ever said no. <laughs> so I said, okay, the, the term, the, the only thing I knew was you do it, and if you get one price for doing it, and then another price if they use it. So at this point, it was $7,000, and then another seven if they used it. And he said, oh, that's perfect. And that was the highest. That was twice what I had asked for the last run. Wow. I couldn't find the top of it. He said, well, I need it tomorrow. And I said, I can't give it to you tomorrow. I have a concert tomorrow night. He said, oh, man. He said, I'm sorry. Um, but if we don't have it tomorrow, it's over. So I said, well, I can't do it. So here I, I, I'm, I'm out on the stage. Someone's threatening to kill me. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to end up paying money at the end of this thing because it, it isn't. You know, it's not going to pay for everybody. And I'm turning down $14,000 to be killed. <laughs> but um, it was what I did. So I did it. And we get on the stage. And the second night was fine. People liked it. You know, it was it, nobody were threatening to kill me. And the, the third day, going back, knowing I had given up $14,000, uh, we're driving this borrowed car. We didn't have enough money to rent one. <laughs> and um, it was an early version of... Um, uh, what became automatic transition was fluid something or another mm -hmm. and um all forward gears went out <laughs> and we had we were about 5 miles outside of Colgate we had to back up along the highway <laughs> to get to get back into Colgate back into the main street and back up a uh, a, a driveway that led into a garage oh, and i'm i'm with my head out the window, Tony is driving, and I'm saying, no, to the, oh, and when we got there, I suddenly felt, got to the garage, got up, we got, we got out, all of a sudden, I had this very, I've only had it once before in my whole life, this kind of, I guess you call it an epiphany, but my whole body went cold, and I, I, I suddenly saw clearly, everything was so clear, and I started to laugh, that's what when I see the um, the you know the the big guy in Tibet, what do they call him? The 
Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama. He's always laughing. And I, I really, un, I've always understood it because I, I just started laughing. And then the garage mechanic laughed and then Tony laughed, but they didn't know what they're laughing about. We were holding ourselves up wow. and you know, stuff coming out of your nose. And I mean, really, <laughs> really tough laughter. Finally, gathering my strength, I said, they didn't know what they're laughing about. And I said, you know what? I suddenly know what I want to do. I want to go this way pointing to against the traffic while everybody's going fast in the other direction. <laughs> and it, because the 14,000 had really confused me. Yeah. Um, and I realized I really loved what I did. I didn't care if someone wanted to kill me. Wow. And it was so clear that the rest of my life was sort of, you know, clarified. A lot of people have given up for money, you know, yeah. and that would have been a very easy thing at that point. Uh, it could have been that moment that said, well, hell, I don't want to do this. I, you know, if I can get all this money, why don't I just do that? But uh, it was so clear, and I've never, I've, I've never in my life, ever, been sorry about that. That was really a very, you know, really great thing. So I get back to my studio, and um, I get a phone call from this guy, and he said they gave us an extra twenty-four hours. Wow. What a confusion that was. I turned around in my seat. I hung up the phone, not even knowing whether that was good or bad. I looked at my equipment, and I thought about this moment, turned around and called him back. He said, I said, I can't do it. And I didn't want to be tempted anymore. I felt so good. I didn't want, it was almost like, you know, someone had given me something bad to eat or something. Uh, And I said, I can't do it. He said, why? I said, I think you'd. You'd say, I've got a sickness. Um, he said, well, how long do you think it'll take to get over it? I, I said, I hope I never get over wow. it. <laughs> wow. And that was the end. I got a couple more calls, turned them down. That was I never did another one after that. Wow. That's Not because I didn't believe in them. I, mean, I didn't care. I really didn't have a political view. It wasn't that I thought it was bad to do commercials or anything like that. It was just personally, it, it was that clarification that purification in a way at that moment was it and i wanted to stay that way wow that's a, a beautiful thing to have arise yeah. and be able to grasp on yeah. to yeah. i'd like to catch that sickness yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh we should uh jump forward from 1967 to i believe 1978 so, sky of so i think cloudless yeah. sulfur right that was my last uh, silver i was my first and i did i knew this was going to be my last record i was going to go on to other things i'd done what i wanted so this the dance which you're going to play was my um swan song to uh vinyl and um and it's a kind of celebration i mean that's why i'm I'm playing it it's very i don't know how much you're going to play um if you don't play the whole thing you should play toward the end of it because that's where the whole thing um happens maybe we can i uh, we'll, we'll do a little fast forward jump into the future it's great to see uh this this photo here i'm um, seeing the the synthesizer and uh, tape machines analog heaven here where was this uh the photograph taken was this in new york or no that's my studio actually that's not my studio that's uh sorry that that's um the opening of cal arts Wow. Um, that's, so that's we, my students there in, 
in the studio. Were you a CalArts in the early years? I started it. Wow. I was part. I was wow. the team that came in to wow. start it in 1969. Incredible. Incredible. Staying true to uh, what you believe in and then spawning uh, other right. action and nice. people. Yeah. That's really yeah. beautiful. Well, let's listen to a bit of uh, Sky of Cloudless Sulfur. And uh, we have Morton Sabotnik here in the Dub Lab studio. So happy. When we get back, we'll tell you about a uh, concert happening tonight and tomorrow night at Red Cat. In the meantime, you could go to redcat.org, find it on the calendar, and uh, read a bit up on that as you uh, bliss out to this music. Sky of Cloudless Sulfur, Morton Sabotnik on Dub Lab. Thank you. 
Yes. <laughs> Seems like uh, by 1978, you had the, uh, the sequencing down pretty solid. Yeah, well, actually, um, this isn't sequenced. Oh, no? No. Um, it, it's, it is sequenced, but in a very different way. Um, it, it has a, a steady pulse. By this time, Columbia Records had given me a 16-track tape recorder to work with. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I had a steady pulse that I could do it live, but it wouldn't sound like this. I mean, it would be uh, thinner in, mm -hmm. in texture. Uh, so I, I put the the um, the steady pulse, which is very fast, was like on um on one track of the sixteen tracks, but filtered so that uh, with a, a, a with a particular frequency that I could easily filter um, and and get that information out on a voltage controlled um, an envelope follower, so I can get a pulse. In the, it came out and went back into the. It, it ran the sequencers. Now the sequencers were set up. I had, I think, I had three sequencers at that point. They were set up so that, well, that, then I could divide it up into half. Uh, I used prime numbers, so I had, I had, I, I first broke it down so I got instead of it was and then and then. Um, and then divided that up into counts of uh, two of them, three of them, five, seven, eleven, and thirteen, so that they they would the beats would I interact in different mm -hmm. kinds of ways. And then I, I using uh, different keys for each one of them, I could control by pressing slightly on one of them. It would go. Doo, 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 doo. And then another, wow. and I, it was all one big long chord that that was in there. So it could go on this one, it would go do, 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 do. this one, would go do, 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 do. And then, and I had all these different things that I had, you know, hundreds of these combinations. And if I just hit it, it would it would activate an envelope follow, uh, generator that would go or in, in things. So I could get these tunes and then, you know, down below I'd get these other tunes and just play them with this touch plate keyboard which both was producing voltage on my on the way I touched it and on which one I touched and how fast I hit it and so forth. And and but what I was playing were not notes. They were these little, um, these little what now would call samples, but they weren't samples. Mm -hmm. They were they were live. And so that recording, were you actually playing that live to two track tape or? How? Yeah, yeah, what I did is I find when I liked what I got, I would re I would record it on a couple of tracks cool. of tape. But I still had the pulse up there, so everything would match up. Nothing would. It was again the Simpty idea that I first used with projectors in the early days, where everything wow. would be lined up by something. So whatever I did would 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 stay within the context of a, a, a beat, and. Um, and so that that I did live, um, but for the recording, I I took the live performances and just kept overdubbing, so to speak, but they were on different tracks. And as a matter of fact, the, the it was originally for eight channels. Uh, it was commissioned by the J.B. Lansing, Lansing Company when they opened a new building in the Valley. And, um, That's JBL. JBL, speaker. yeah. Wow. And um, so we had four speakers below and four speakers above. 
and sounds were flying, you know, these pulsing things were flying all over the place. And then um, reduced it. I did it. I did it all in stereo, so they would go to diagonal up, diagonal down. There were diagonals everywhere, and so that when it got reduced to stereo, it would still have that quality. Mm. And then recently, I um, had a mode did the original. Well, in four tracks, not um, or surround sound, not um, uh, eight, and um, and I will be doing six channel versions of it. Uh, um, Live, uh, using the computer, simulating what I did. Um, next season, I'll be traveling with a Great. remix of Silver Apples and a and a and the. But but a, it'll be a different piece. But a lo- definitely use this section in it because this was this was something I really loved. Mm. It was really great. When did you make that transition to computers? After this record. Wow. Um, I gave my. All my analog stuff to Vladimir Usachevsky, and um, he went off with staying with analog. And I, I had, as you said, I, I had really gotten this down. Yeah. And I couldn't, I really could not imagine doing anything more beautiful than this. I mean, other people might, but I, I couldn't. It. This was, this ending here was really special. You know, I still, I listen to it. I still feel that That's way. Great. And um, it was, it's a. It's it's very unique. It's got its own quality. I mean, it's like a lot of things, but it's really special. And I, I, I was ready to go on to do something else. I never wanted to stay one place anyway. So, I gave him all the equipment, and I didn't know what I was going to do at that point because I had never used a computer. We were just coming into you know, the Mac Plus had just come out, and um, um, so I I got a commission, not a commission. I got a residency at MIT that year um, to come and just be an artist in residence and do whatever I wanted. And I didn't know anything about computers, so I didn't know whether to buy a PC or Mac. The PC, the, the um, IBM laptop had just come out. And, um, and not a laptop. But they weren't laptops, but this, the, the table model, mm-hmm. the small one. And it's come out, and the Mac Plus had just come out. And I I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know anything about it, anything with computers. But the, I heard that all the students at MIT had Mac Pluses, so I bought a Mac Plus. And, and did I, they have musical applications no, on the Mac at that point? or mm-hmm, no? Nothing, but nothing. You needed to program and yeah, get into Yeah, no, there was nothing. Wow. So I uh, there was no MIDI yet. Uh, yeah. Was there MIDI? I think MIDI had just just hit it Got i it. think it just it happened um but it was just at the very beginning and so i i went and um i i tried to conceptualize what i was going to do with the computer i wasn't going to try to redo what i did with the analog of what i'm going to do and i realized what i really wanted to do was to have some kind of interactivity between hu- humans and and the machine that's something you really couldn't do in a large scale so i they had a very simple programming language, which actually turned into Max later, but um, it wasn't there yet. And uh, <clears throat> and something that I could learn quickly because I was only there for a couple of months, and um, and I didn't know any computer languages, so I I developed um, uh, a kind of algorithm for the computer to be able to follow a conductor 
um, given if you had an input. I just used tapping to, to do it. And to follow a score, uh, the computer would actually follow the conductor and tempo and be able to know where it was at all times. Mm. And um, it took me about five, six weeks, and I, and I did it and um, with help. Um, but I did the program myself, but I, you know, had conferences with people, and um, I have great people that I had, um, um, well, it was, you know, MIT, it oh, was I great, see. and uh, so I, I, I did it, and um, everybody was pretty amazed, because I, I gave a demonstration at the end, and they took a look at the program I made, and one of the kids said, I don't understand what you did, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, we learned, you know, he said, "You've got everything all over the place. You think, you think, in in uh, forward and backward at the same time." He said, we, "You know, we learned that you only way you can program is go step by step. You know, so you know where you are all the time." And I I didn't really understand what he said until I took it back home and I realized that I couldn't interpret my own sketches anymore. I didn't know what I had done. <laughs> And then I understood what he said. It was just, you know, I, I did it so impulsively. I was yeah. just doing it all over the place. And, it's uh, like but you're it worked. A programming easel akin to your music yeah, easel. Yeah, right. I, I was treating it like a music yeah. easel. And, um, but it worked. And I realized that I could, I was able to, I had the capacity to do it. And so I, I, then I moved to the computer at that point. Tell us about a project that you currently have the Creating Music. The children's program. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that came about. I'm gonna probably have to yeah, cruise out soon. Yeah. yeah um, it's it's a. Um, you know, when I I said that at the early that early period, I I had a, the idea of a music easel, uh, a sound easel. Um, shortly after that, I I. I expanded the notion to little kids because the, the, the metaphor just grew with me. It, 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 it was a very true metaphor. I mean, it really worked. And so I, I had the idea that not only could people, you know, teenagers through adults um, paint with it, but it literally could be a new way for people to understand and, and experience music at a very early age, I realized that we had evolved as a culture, as a human, as an animal, um, and we all had music, uh, but the, we couldn't play with music without um, the creative ability, without performing it. You had to sing it or play it. And we had developed in recent time the ability to be able to go out of real time like you can when you write a poem or you you write a book or you you know there's so many things that we do not in real time that the printing press brought about you know writing and things like that has changed what we can do and added a whole layer of expansion of human capacity but that is wasn't available in music before you already learned. The music, so it, it was a kind of, um, you understand what I'm saying, it, 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 it's a, it's still true. It, it's like a, um, uh, it's this paradox where 
you can't be creative yeah. because the only way you can get to it is by not being creative, mm -hmm. by imitating something. And so it seemed to me that there would, there would be a way with the new technology, with the computer, at uh, first with the analog stuff, uh, but that didn't work out at all. And then it was just, the, the, there was no way to get it in, into the hands of anyone. And But with the computer, I finally realized it was finally going to be possible to do that. And that, that's what led me to it. So about, I guess about 15 years ago now, I, I started um, setting up prototypes for an entire w creative world for little kids starting at that time, five years old, they didn't think kid under five could use a mouse, but now it goes down to three years old. Yeah. And uh, now I have the whole series is finally done. And um, I'm, develop I'm trying to move to a curriculum now that's, that's a curriculum of learning music that is based entirely on creative. Everything comes from what you do. And so you never give up the creativity as you move forward. Real uh, human experience and uh, allowing people to to express and develop. That's really yeah, beautiful. and it didn't have to be the music that we know. You know, in fact, I'd be surprised if it were the music mm -hmm. that we know. If you want to find out more, creatingmusic.com, check that out. And uh, also, of course, uh, you can go straight to mortensubotnik.com. That's S-U-B-O-T-N-I-C-K, mortensubotnik.com. And uh, let's tell people very quickly about the uh, program this evening and tomorrow night. These are the last two nights of uh, your concert series at the Red Cat in downtown Los Angeles. Um, right. What is uh, happening? Well, this was uh, a work I collaborated with the dancer Anna Halperin. Um, I was the composer for her company during the early 60s. And... Um, she had originally the people before me were Lamont Young and Terry Riley. They left for San Francisco, uh, for New York and um, Paris, and around 1960, 61, something like that. And I took over the company uh, when they left, and so I was with it until 66 or 67. Mm. And um, that's a long story, but but um, we were doing. It was, they were collaborative pieces. It was Anne's company, and she was, you know, the, she was the boss. But, um, but it, they were collaborations in that there was a lighting person, um, myself and Anne, and several other people. But they're essentially a, a core of about three or four people, and um, we would feed off each other. And um, one thing would, for instance, I w I would, in this particular event, uh, I. I had a thing, everything was called a dance, so there was a, a thing that was called the stomping dance. At that, that's in 1963, probably, when that came up. Well, now stomp is a term that everybody uses, but stomp literally was, you know, not dancing, that was stomping on a bee or, you know, stomping. And, I, and we were dealing with ordinary things and turning them into beautiful objects, so this was the stomp dance, right? Wow. So I developed a score that dancers could and I taught the, the rhythms to them so that it wouldn't be fixed but it had the possibility of starting with great symmetry and then growing into complex like using a lot of sequencers or something into a complex thing and built in you know stops and various things and and then and would then take it and 
choreograph it so that they were doing the dance, but where were they doing, how were they doing it, and what the attitude was about the stomping and things like that. So there's that kind of collaboration that went through the whole the whole piece. I won't give you the details. You can see that. But um, we, the premiere that we did in New York, it had been done in various places and various forms. The, the premiere we did in New York recently, about five years ago, was, as I understand, some French historian or something said the night we did that was the night the postmodern dance began. Mm -hmm. So um, that it excited people, and they invited Anne to, to recreate part of it several years ago at the Pompidou Center in Paris, and um, she said, well, you know, we really need to bring Morton. Cause they really didn't understand the notion of this collaboration. Got so it. she said, I you really need to bring Morton along. So they, they called me, and we got in touch, and they brought me. So Anne and I went and did this in um, Paris, and that was a big success. We just did a little bit of it. Um, and then a um, one of the dancers in that performance um, formed a company and with great effort, I mean, she did an amazing job, got money and the whole thing, and put got these dancers from various parts of the world, uh, six of them, and put it, this whole thing together. And um, and to re, I don't know if it's a recreation, sort of a recreation of that, of the whole thing, because it was much more than these, the part that we had done. So it's about mm -hmm. 90 minutes, and um, came out and worked in the United States with us, and we flew to. Um, San Francisco to with where Ann has her studio and where are we? We're in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, or are we? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then they send a young man, um, Sebastian, um, out to New York to work with me on the sound. And then Ann couldn't travel. Um, there were a number of reasons at that point. She's almost ninety now, and um, so I went out with the company. In in France, a couple, about a year, little, about a year ago, last September, and worked for about four or five weeks mm -hmm. uh, with them, and then they they did it in Lyon and then Paris and then toured Europe, and now they're on a U.S. tour. So that's what this is. Great. So you've uh, performed two nights already, and uh, we have two more nights to go. If you're in Los Angeles, uh, you should really uh, check it out this evening at 8.30 p.m. and tomorrow night at 8.30 p.m. Do you know if there are tickets available still? I, I don't know. You can uh, check it by visiting redcat.org, the wonderful people at Redcat, and you can also call 213-237-2800. If you're elsewhere in the world, then uh, teleport, cruise on down, redcat.org, and uh, you can enjoy this uh, show Morton Sabotnik and uh, Anna Halprin and Collad and guests parades and changes replays West Coast premiere so Great. Uh, some new visions and sounds for the people out here and it's been a real pleasure a West Coast premiere West Coast premiere. after the 40 years ago <laughs> <laughs> You know, re-premiere, re-premiere, re re yeah. Maybe there's a there's a period once you pass. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's thirty nine. Thirty nine years. years. Yeah. So you can re-premiere, and um, uh, on a different day, a different note, we, we're presenting a show with Terry Riley and Kronos Quartet and Matmos, and uh, we uh, we I just was reading 
few years back and was hearing about your relationship with Terry Riley and kind of spawning of NC. And um, so maybe that's for round two. We can uh, bring you back. But uh, we're really um, uh, thankful that you could make time to come down here and share some uh, some insight and inspiration with our listeners and give them uh, a view into your creative world. Great. Thank Thank you you. so much. This is wonderful. Thank you. Well, here's some music now from maybe a touch, which is on the left turn table. This is actually my most recent uh, Subotnik acquisition and been digging this so much. Stay tuned. It's dublab.com. We just uh, had conversation with Morton Subotnik, and we hope that your ears are live and bright and buzzing with beauty. Stay tuned. Touch from Morton Subotnik. I'm <laughs> 
Thank <laughs> you.